Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, I like you, like it not. That's when it got wheels off. Zach Rogue joins Wheels Off from the almost entirely converted garage of his home in Oakland. Now, the audio quality, because he and I are both connected to Wi-Fi and subject to the whims of Ethernet cables and that sort of thing, the audio quality suffers towards the beginning of this interview. Please hang in there. After a short while of jumpiness and clipped sound, it straightens out. So the last half, two-thirds of the interview sounds really good. All of it is interesting and inspiring. Zach is a really cool, thoughtful guy. He has his fingers in a lot of pies. So much so that after we finished, he texted me and said, Oh man, I forgot to even talk about screenwriting. Because that is something he's also interested in. We had discussed it at great length just a couple of weeks before. But um, that's the way it is with creative people, right? They make things and think about making things. And it doesn't always matter what the kind of thing is that they're making. Certainly not in the case of Zach Rogue. I look forward to you hearing this conversation. And I'm so grateful that he joins me on Wheels Off. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Wheels Off, Zach Rogue. Zach Rogue, welcome to Wheels Off. Thank you for having me. Woo. It's a joy. It's a joy Thanks. to be here. Thanks for being here. I, I know, I wish we were in person, but we're virtual. We all are. We are all very virtual these days. <laughs> yeah. So, well, so tell me what it is that you're working on at the moment and how does it light you up? Well, I'm I'm kind of working on several things at the same time because time has no meaning. It's just <laughs> every day is Sunday. <laughs> and in fact, you know, I speak of digression. I, I watched that movie Palm Springs, which, you know, has its kind of echoes of Groundhog Day. Have you heard of the movie Palm Springs that just came out? Yeah. And it's so I mean. I'm sure it wasn't intentional at the time, but now it's just it it's so relevant to see that movie right now um, because we are all in this sort of time loop. Right. Um, So given that that's the case and given that hours of the day and you and I are both parents and so we have to kind of segment our days in in different ways. And so I've been kind of juggling that in the extreme. I have a son who's um, excited explosively seven years old almost almost seven years old and uh you know got to get creative every day but on the creative side of things um and then another digression i don't know about you but when i'm coming up with a lot of ideas sometimes for songs i 
do a lot of stuff on voice memos on my phone. Like I'm sure a lot of people do that. And you, know, you have the whole library of stuff, some of which have names. And so what I do a lot of times when I'm going to kind of sort of like formalize a song idea or try to build it, whether it's lyrics or make it into a song, if I feel like I want to, I'll go back and I'll sit there and I do my voice memo reviews. And I was laughing so hard a couple of days ago. I'm sitting on my couch. I'm like, all right, I'm going to listen to some of these voice memos. And every single one there's like this idea and then there's dad like everyone is punctuated by my son coming in dad 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 it's every every single one it's like it's incredible <laughs> so um so prior to uh prior to covid i had um just wrapped up uh my first real solo record um and super super jazzed about it just you know incredible musicians and um you know people my kind of rule for the record was i wanted to work with people i wanted everyone i worked with for the most part to be someone i'd never worked with before so this kind of i wanted to feel a little bit sort of intimidated and raw and sort of naked and vulnerable and all those kinds of feelings i felt <laughs> i mean still feel but especially when i started it was you know i was kind of I don't know if I want to share these ideas, you know, all that that insecurity, which I think is a benefit. The insecurity is a good thing, I think, in in certain ways. And so anyway, I finished up that record and I was kind of plotting, you know, with my booking agent and, you know, the stuff I was going to do and who was going to be in the band and all that stuff. And um, that is not happening now. And I've actually, and, you know, you and I should talk about, I mean, I've, I've been debating about, you know, if I should release it now or you know, what what's, what really makes sense right now and if I should just kind of be doing some, just, just playing. Um, you know, you and, I, you and I have talked about it a little bit. I, I was doing a lot of like Instagram live performing uh, and I, I was having so much fun with it and I hadn't done that stuff really before. And, and I was thinking, you know, there's a lot of utility to this in terms of connecting with people and the conversations kind of offline I was having with people that are kind of affiliated with our kind of musical circle felt really rich and um, and just really brought me back because I was feeling so down and detached. You know, there's so much so much detachment happening right now. Of course, we can't touch each other. We can't be in the same room. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like I want to put it up the record and, you know, I feel like I've written another record. <laughs> <laughs> in the meantime so um and everything then feels stale right like i'm like oh is that record now relevant to me because i'm now writing these new things <sighs> uh, so i'm sure you're kind of living that too you know it's funny i wonder if like we finished our record the day before everything locked down and i felt really grateful that we were able to get it in under the wire and so your record yeah. your solo record was also yeah. got you got it in under the wire. I think we're yeah. probably coming into an era where, like, I know my friend uh, Joe Pernice up in Toronto for from mm. the Pernice Brothers. He just made yeah. a record in his basement bike shop, acoustic guitar, nylon string guitar, and his vocal. That's it. I think we're up. We're we're about to get hit by a, a massive onslaught of acoustic guitar and vocal albums. I'm I'm gonna make one. Um, yeah. So the yeah. fact that you've got like a fully produced album in the can, yeah, I, I think that's great. I think people will would love to hear it. And if you're able to get it out, 
then it it's it makes you not like artistically constipated. You you get to then move on to the next one without having this one waiting and waiting. Well, you know what's really funny is you know I have a brain like a sieve, and I was um I had this kind of you know I get these. I am a very light sleeper, so like if there's a thought that I was kind of thinking about when I went to bed. It'll bubble up at a certain point in the night, and I'll kind of wake up and start. And a couple of nights ago, I woke up and I'm like, "Shit, what if I don't remember how to play these songs?" Like it's like I, I have such a bad memory. I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to relearn my own record because it's been enough time. You know, what if I can't competently play the record by myself? Because promoting it, you know, if, and you know, you're right. If I do, if I do release it, and as we said, I mean this kind of prolonged non-live performance thing, um, if it goes on, you know, um, you know I, I don't know. I feel like, I want to feel like, and I've always felt like my songs, songs that I've written, don't really have that much application if I can't sit with the guitar and play it to you. Yeah. You know, and that, there's no, and I don't mean the, the band or people I play with don't make a contribution because it, absolutely but i feel like if at the heart of it if i can't like explain it to you me to you how the song goes and what the song is then i feel like maybe i didn't really do my job you know i yeah. don't know i don't know if you feel that way with your songs well i mean i i feel like i'm at heart a folk singer so <clears throat> like and and thank god because now i'm able to sit by myself in this dumb room and play all these songs and I'm doing all these albums so I'm playing songs I played I played a song the other night that I hadn't played for 30 years Really? That's a weird feeling. <laughs> it's just a how, long time. So for you how's your recall? Do you have do you have to relearn or are you kind of like you've always kind of you're always with them? It's funny. Well, um thank you for interviewing me. I hope you don't mind that this part of that. <laughs> um I don't know. I I want to know. I I want to know about you. <laughs> I, um, I, you know, it's funny. I shape my, when you ask me that, I like, uh, my recall's terrible, but that's not true at all. Like I'll look at a piece of paper from 30 years ago because I found these old notebooks and I'll open it up and I'll just remember the whole thing. And I don't know why maybe music is its own form of time travel anyway. Right. Like, I don't know when I play a song, I'm transported back to where I was when I wrote the song or the 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 breakup that inspired it or something. So there's there's time travel built into these songs anyway. So yeah, I remember them way better than I would have expected to. You know what's funny? I've been having some major time travel experiences lately. What's funny is like for me it's a it's a two part traveling of time. There's the one part of when it was recorded. And mm -hmm. then there's the other part of when it was written to divorce things. So I have this one song on the first Rogoy record that I really remember very clearly when it was recorded. But I also remember when I wrote it, and I, I, wrote this, I remember I wrote the song and I was working at Whole Foods as a checker. <laughs> this is when I was writing it. <laughs> and I hated the job so much. And I remember I was writing in between mildly rude people that would make eye contact by the way always make eye contact with people when you would check out at the grocery store because it's hurtful when you don't make eye anyway um and so i really <laughs> didn't like the job and i remember i was right writing the lyrics and you remember in like in wine bags how they're like kind of a narrow piece of paper so I, I would write the lyrics on the wine bags and i remember that's and it's actually a, kind of a good length and you know i for that song in particular the, the lines of the lyrics weren't very 
lengthy. They were really kind of rhythmic. But whenever I think of that song, I'm taken back partially when it was recorded and playing with the band. But really, it's the genesis of the song and how I was feeling. And I felt so trapped in the first of all, trapped because I was stuck at this register, but just trapped in my life and my world and hating that after all the education I had, like, what was I doing you know and uh anyway and and it's it's instructive and um but the other time travel thing i wanted to tell you is this actually i experienced this last night i was driving i i i haven't really been out you know i haven't been seeing anyone you know like everybody else and i i was invited to go to this a friend was having a birthday thing you know, really spread out on this maybe that's safe and it's actually this beach there's like no one at it and so i went Last night, got to see a few friends, you know, spaced out with our masks, feeling like we're all bandits. But, uh, and uh, I was leaving, and I had gotten this invite from a friend of mine who's getting remarried. And uh, he was one of my best friends uh, in the college days. And I was thinking about him. And so I get in the car, and I'm driving home, and it's this, like, foggy, misty night. And uh, I had been thinking about pavement. For some reason, I think they just reissued some of their merch or something. And I, and I was looking at their merch. And I'm like, wow, I think I owned all of it. Um, but I'm driving in, um, put on Wowie Zowie, which is a record I haven't heard in a long time. I don't know what, if, how it devoted you were to pavement. I was just, you know, to the moon of pavement. And I put on Wowie Zowie. And I haven't listened to that particular record in a long time, just back to back. I've maybe heard songs, but I put it on. And partially I was thinking about my friend. Partially it was like a misty, dark night. I'm driving and I'd seen friends for the first time but i was taken back to that time of my life um and it, it's like it was like i was reading an oliver sacks book or something i was just i was it, it triggered all of the sensory stuff who i was then i i felt like i was in that time period of my life i was reliving it it was just really visceral and i don't get that as much with music that i'm visiting all the time but that just happens to be a record that i hadn't gone through in a long time and i was just instantly there and it reminds me of the power of of um you know what we do what we've chosen to do and why it does have meaning it's easy to sometimes for me to forget that meaning because i'm struggling to decide what the next thing i'm doing is um but it's it's a reminder to me of the impact that it really does have i mean i don't personally know steve malcolmus or any of the guys there bob right in the dudes in the band but i i owe so much to them they brand they imprinted my life so deeply it's crazy well it's funny too i i also giant pavement fan and i remember when that record came out because there was a bit of a backlash within the pavement fan community because it was i'm pretty sure it was like a major label album or if it wasn't it was like their most um i don't know their biggest release at the time but there was like oh man there's there was a sellout component to the reaction to that album but I loved that uh-huh. album. I guess it's that uh, thing where you love the first album or the first two albums, and then this next record comes out, and everybody's got it. And you're like, I'm not, yeah. I don't like them anymore. God, they were so well, great. I, I, I discovered a lot about expressions of sellout. You know, when I was, I went to UC Davis, that's where I went to college, and I worked at the radio station, KDBS, there, and which is an incredible, incredible radio station. Their vinyl collection is unbelievable. It was such a learning experience for me. But I remember when I started, um, Slanted and Enchanted Pavement Record was the thing. And I remember even then when Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain came out, there were shots of sellout your hair. 
was like a single yeah. like that because it was on MTV. And I'm like, dude, that's a, a very weird six chord progression <laughs> song that just loops. That is not a sellout song. That is incredible that they even pulled that song off. But those cries of sellout, I mean, you know, it's just the fan base um, not wanting things to change. Yeah. Um, but in retrospect, I realized how small that group was. You know, it's things changed a lot. I think it's when Float On by Modest Mouse hit. I think that's when that definition, that kind of music kind of altered. At least it seemed that way. Is that something that you have, because you've had, um, you know, songs that connected and success like that. Is that something you've had to deal with, you know, accusations of? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that when we first started the licensing question was we were on the cusp of that being a thing if that was you know you should you shouldn't do that you know i at least for me i was really wondering when we put out our first record i remember when i got my first licensing uh you know uh, offer i kind of wanted to say no because it's like i don't i don't do you know something that's not why i'm doing this then others pointed out to me well do you see that van that we have and you don't if you want that yeah because you gotta you need you know i was you know and i think that kind of idealism um was important for me you know there was a real purity to to when we were starting we just wanted to we didn't even care about playing shows initially we just like practicing together you know it was like it was just being together and feeling understood by others you know and i you know, if you don't feel like you fit in growing up, just it's a revelation having other people to play music with that want, you know, for me, I was the one writing the songs and that there are people that wanted to play with me was, you know, was a revelation in and of itself. And so those other steps of like, can I use your song in a wine commercial or like whatever? It's like it was a little bit anathema to me. But yeah, certainly. Um, and I I found a lot of those questions of are and i i'm sure you can identify with this a lot of times when i'd see criticism of the music that rogue wave was putting out it it's like they have this impression that you're putting together these songs because you think you know where they're going to end up you know as if there's this grand plan of how it's going to be marketed you know when we're when i'm writing songs and woodshedding with the band we don't even know what's going to be on the album you know the sequencing part happens so much after you know we'll start with like 30 or 35 song ideas and there's never this like yeah we're we hope this is going to fit in this niche you know it it doesn't really work that way and so there's uh, that's why i think musical criticism a lot of times is inherently flawed because they think you have this um this goal from the outset which we never really did and when we put out which i guess you could call our most commercially accessible record um sleep at heaven's gate which had our song lake michigan on it um you know there was a lot of criticism saying it sounded like you know this big high production arena rock you know seeing a lot of that kind of stuff and it's so funny it's like we're using four track machines and you know it was like it was the most experimental thing we're using like toy instruments and you know we were we were just so into the studio and it was like us it, it was no different than anything we'd done before you know it was just it i felt like there was a disconnect almost like i didn't understand like have you listened to the record like there's you know all kinds of weird tape delay and like you know it was us screwing around with our little 
you know, kind of crappy gear. Sometimes with like, we had a, a nice tape machine we were using in the studio, but it wasn't like, you know, it was slick, you know, not really capable of that. At least I don't think. <laughs> oh my God. People are so funny. It's, um, I mean, but I get it. I mean, I guess I, it's, it's something that carries over from the punk rock thing, right? Where it's, uh, where it's like it has to be, you know. What's funny? I, d- I deal with it w- with band members in my band who will be like, "This is not who we are." Mm-hmm. Less less so now than maybe back in the day, but um, that whole idea of we've got to be true to who we are. I'm like, well, who we are is whoever we decide to be, right? It's up to us. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's very tricky. Um, yeah. Well, I was I was watching that uh the documentary um that the. Once we were brothers, you know the of the band. Did you? I don't know if you saw that yet. And it's kind of from the Robbie Robertson point of view. I think it's basically an extension of his book in certain respects. But um, you know, and it's been obviously well documented when they were touring with Dylan when he went electric and all that, and how there was this kind of, you know, I don't know what it must be like to be booed like that every single night. But you know, I I do appreciate the kind of the Dylan perspective, which is like. And Neil Young and a lot of these people, they're like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Joni Mitchell, it's like, I'm going to follow my muse. And, you know, um, I I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I take the same, you know, approach. I, you know, sometimes I think on this this new record that I did, that the solo record, which <laughs> who knows when. But there's um there's a lot of kind of electronic sounds. There's a lot of kind of psych moments. There's a lot. And it doesn't necessarily have a through line. And I and I feel like that's okay. And and I I go through that, you know, who am I, a bit. But I I care less about that. You know, I just I just gonna follow my muse. And and the fact also is that a lot of the tools that are out there to to make songs um, are kind of rapidly evolving. And I fear sometimes because of. And granted, I've experimented with a lot of those tools, like you know, the splice and all the kind of stuff like that. Like I'm concerned that it's making music kind of all sound the same. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I, um, I'm sensitive to that and I don't, I like some of those tools cause they're fun and sometimes kind of easy, but I resist them a lot and sort of go back to my stuff. Cause, um, I don't know. I don't want to use what everyone's using. You know, I don't know if you experienced that too. I mean, I I think you're a lot more accomplished in the studio as far as using gear and and knowing what you're doing. I'm like, I can play a six string acoustic or a twelve yeah. string acoustic. So <laughs> you can play both. Yeah, country or, or an Asheville tune. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so, I, but I wonder about that. I love. By, by the way, I love the idea of you writing on a wine bag at a Whole Foods <laughs> checkout line. By the way, what song was that? It was a song called Endless Shovel. Endless In shovel. fact, you know what's really funny is, um, so I told you I'm turning my garage into this kind of live streaming room. Um, and I'm I'm very excited about this process. Um, my garage happens to be like insulated. Like it's a, a really good room, just period. But I was, go- I had to, if you had seen what it looked like before I gutted it, I mean, it was just, it was filled with yeah. debris, with stuff I needed to get rid of. Um, but in so doing, I was going through just stuff, you know, all kinds of stuff from my life, but some stuff, you know, band stuff. And I found this, um, this um, DVR 
of that song, which is, I believe, the first time Rogue Wave ever played, um, you know, broadcast TV. And we played on we played that song on the John McEnroe show. We did that show, too. That's hilarious. Did he get up and play with you? Well, yes. And we didn't know, you know, and (laughs) and so we're sitting there and I'm just I don't know what I was so green. I mean, I we were not ready to be doing anything touring or any, we were just, I was so not, I hadn't come into my own yet as a musician. I was really kind of nervous about any kind of public performance really. And, but when we did that, we play the song and I, I didn't know where to look. I didn't know what to do with myself. But when we were done, he grabs a guitar and he's, and he tells like our drummer, he's like shuffle in D or something. And we're like, what? And he just, plugs in and starts playing and we're like what are we supposed to do we're not that kind of a you don't jam like that i don't even know what you're saying man so you know our drummer starts playing a beat and we're just looking at each other and and mackinaw's off he's he's going he's going for it like i guess we start playing along with him i don't know oh my god that is so funny yeah he ah. did with us with us he did uh what do you what do you want to do and we're like i don't know we don't we're the same as you we don't jam i think we ended yeah. up doing uh uh, I want to be sedated, like a half of oh. I want to be just just a terrible version. But whatever, man, John McEnroe, he does what he wants. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, I remember, I mean, I have I have kind of a poor memory, but I do remember that um, Triumph, the insult comic dog was one of the guests that day. And that was I remember thinking oh. that was Michael was kind of in the area. That was that was kind of neat. <laughs> Brilliant. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. So I found that I found that uh, that DVR. So it's finding uh, you know little pieces of history. Um, it's kind of neat, you know. So where where did it start for you? I mean, were you like a kid who knew you wanted to do rock and you played in talent shows? Was there like a very young age kind of epiphany moment for you? How did it work? Um, well, you know, I see behind you. You've got all the a lot of those cool acoustics. For me, um, there's a difference between what I thought I would do um, professionally and, you know, and who I was. So when I was a little, little kid in the summers, I'd go to summer camp, go to Jewish summer camp. And the dudes would have their acoustic guitars and we'd sing these folk songs, you know, these Debbie Friedman was like this kind of, she kind of was the Bob Dylan of like Jewish folk songs. She like Dylanized music for like, you know, the, you know, I don't know, baby boomers. Um, but I was a disciple of kind of listening to songs in that format, just sitting there around the campfire and hearing these beautiful kind of Eastern chord progression melodies. And I felt it even at, you know, even age 10, I mean, I deeply felt that music and the sound of the acoustic guitar and, you know, seeing what a capo did and just the power of a steel string instrument and the power of just a voice and a guitar and that being enough. Um, I really, I was really moved by that and it really felt like that's kind of who I was. And then when I got a little bit older, I got a Beatles songbook and I was like, oh, well, you know, it's kind of the same thing as the other ones at camp. It's not, you know, that different. And then what, then when I hit, you know, middle school and discovered, you know, REM and the Cure and the Smiths and Elvis Costello, then I was like off to the races. And that was kind of, I feel like that was really my identity, right? And, you know, I did what a lot of kids did. I played in high school bands, you know, really kind of not so great cover bands. But, you know, I was always writing and I was I was always writing songs. And I think I 
And I discovered actually as I became an adult that I actually had been writing songs my whole life, but I didn't really realize it. It was just kind of a a, a, a dialogue or monologue that was kind of going on in my head. I didn't realize that that's what songwriting was. I thought it was just me kind of thinking. Um, and what I've actually discovered, and I don't know if you've had this experience before, but when I started getting into writing songs and re- recording them or just recording them as a thought, I kind of felt like when I would settle on a hook that I liked, I felt like it was like preordained. Like I felt like it was already, I feel like anything I've written, I think I've already written it. It's just my life experience makes it come out a little bit. I always felt like this connection when I wrote something I liked that it was because I already, I already knew it on some level. Um, but, but anyway, you know, I, I never thought in a million years that any of the stuff that I did by myself was really going to go beyond that. And, um, I, you know, I, I would play in bands, you know, um, but when I got laid off from a job that I'd had, you know, a real job, um, that's when I started really getting into um, recording. And that's when I really made the first Rogue Wave album. Um, but it was it was not none of those things were expected. You know, I, I was just laid off from a job and I, I didn't have a job. And I had been writing these songs and I had become friendly with this guy who graduated from Full Sail. And he he invited me out to record I, I had basically done some four track demos and I sent it to him like, do these sound like songs to you? <laughs> and he said, and I, so I, um, and so I sent them to him and he said, you know, I just, I just got this job at a studio. Why don't you come out here? And, you know, and we recorded what became the first, <clears throat> first Rogue Wave record. And, but, you know, again, I mean, I was just each step of the way, you know, that, that record's what Sub Pop ended up putting out. Um, it was, it just it's not the path that I thought I was going to have. And we, when we started touring as a band and uh, one of the first bands we went out with was the Shins, which at the time was like kind of my favorite band. Um, it was it was just surreal isn't the right word. You know, I felt like I was at a party that I probably shouldn't have been invited to, you know. <laughs> and so um, and it was cool, but I felt really insecure about it, you know, like. You know, and when we went out with them, it's like we're meeting all these other bands too, right? I remember we played this one show in Minneapolis. It was like us and Calexico and the Shins, and then I'm like, the show's over, and then I'm hanging out with those bands. And then we went to go see some other show. I think it was like like Dizzy Rascal and um, the Streets. I think we're playing. They were playing a show together that night, also like later. And we went. Then we're hanging out with. It was like. I don't know what party I'm at right now. This is a cool party. I'll I'll hang around. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it, it was all a big surprise to me, you know. And I I didn't expect it to go that way. I mean, I kind of thought I was going to have a job in like diplomacy or something. You know, that's kind of what I wanted to do when I was in college. Um, so I don't know. Well, that that's so funny that you were on such a track. I mean, I would I wouldn't say court. It doesn't sound like it was a corporate track. But you had like a safety net, you had a plan, but it was almost like you're saying with your songs, it was kind of like it was preordained and meant to be. Was that scary when you finally decided that you would, you know, throw your all everything into music? Well, you know what? I remember when I w- went to New York to record the first record with Bill Racine, who he produced that record. And he did the second Rogue Wave record, too, which is called Descend Like Vultures. And I remember, so he was working at... um 
at a, at a studio and he was in uh he was in Woodstock and we we'd record in the studio like super super late at night basically when it was closed mm-hmm. um and uh, and then we do a lot of the tracking and he had this one room house and we'd record like the vocals in the bathroom and you know acoustic guitars in there we'd try to do some of the other like electric stuff in the studio but i remember we'd record all this stuff and then we late late in the night or early in the morning we'd I remember I'd lay on the floor in his house and we'd play back our rough stuff, you know, cause there weren't any drums yet. We did the drums after, um, which was crazy and stuff, but I'd listen to these roughs and I, w- I still remember how that felt. You know, I felt like uh, I was very emotional for me because I'd spent all this time. You're right on this path where I was like, it was like, I was a project manager of this tech company. Right. And then I was here because I, I was laid off. Then I'm laying on the floor in this room in Woodstock, New York, listening to these roughs of music that I had written. And uh, it was emotional. I'm like, I felt like for the first time in my life, I had done something that meant something to me. It, it felt like it was really an expression of who I was. And I um, I know this sounds so stupid, but I I was afraid to fly home <laughs> because I was I because I had the stuff like on this drive. I'm like, if I die, if the if the, the plane crashes, there'll be no record of <laughs> what this was. This meant so much to me. Is the first is the only thing my life has been worth is is traveling with me. And if I don't survive this, then my family will never have record <laughs> of what I did. Um, and so, um, yeah, it um. And, but I would say I didn't just jump into it right away because I made this record, but I didn't have a band yet. So I had to get a band. And even still, you know, I like I say, I didn't expect to be on tour. Like all these things came a little bit after that. And I, I still thought I was just going to have a normal job, you know. As much as I was excited about this record that I had made, I, I still hadn't really shared it really with anyone. And I I don't know, it's... it's um. All of it was a big surprise when we got the call from Sub Pop, you know, that whole when that whole thing, that whole chain of events started for us. It was it, to say it was unexpected. It's like I didn't I'd never met anyone at a record label. I mean, I just it was not part of my world. I was a insane music fan. I mean, I was like an encyclopedia of indie rock, you know, but I didn't think that I was part of the community at that point. You know, well, it's interesting hearing you describe you know, being out after the show with the shins and feeling like you had kind of crashed the part. I mean, I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth by saying that, but that you'd kind of crashed the party that you, like, you felt like uh, what sounds kind of like classic imposter syndrome. And yet this was something that you'd kind of been working towards for your whole life, even if perhaps it was unconscious. I mean, is, is that something that you've kind of always dealt with or did it go away once you'd kind of had some success I mean, how do you deal with those internally generated obstacles? Well, you know, it goes in waves. I was listening to a a podcast the other day of of uh, Michael Stipe and Mike Mills. Kind of, they I think they're doing the 25th anniversary issue of Monster, so they were kind of talking about their process and where they were at a band. And I think for me, and maybe it's because you know, sometimes as an adolescent, I had. You know, had trouble emotionally and the esteem that i held with you know bands meant so much to me i i worshiped bands you know and all you know what they saved me as an adolescent 
uh, in college, they defined who I was, you know, you know, talking about pavement or guided by voices or, you know, the flaming lips of so these bands, they were like holy figures to me. And when I started touring as a band and meeting some of these people or opening for some of these bands or some of those experiences, it, it, it's hard to explain, you know, and I, I don't, I, and I always kind of felt, I, I, I felt like I didn't really even want to meet those people because I felt like, not that they would be unkind, but I, I just didn't feel like I'd have anything necessarily to say <laughs> that would be of interest. But um, yeah, I, and I'm sure everyone goes through an imposter syndrome and it is something I, I deal with. And I felt like um, I find comfort in hearing other artists kind of <laughs> say they feel that way too. Um, but I, as I said earlier, I feel like some of that insecurity and, and um, it, it always brings me back to square run square one as a songwriter, because um, the way I felt when I was writing my first songs and that first Rogue Wave record, it's a good place to be. It's not a good place if, you, if you're trying to say, oh, well, somebody who likes us, will they like this, this thing? I don't think that benefits me as an artist. And actually talking about Wowie Zowie, that record, I mean, despite maybe people calling it a sell, that record is so crazy. It is so unusual, and the experimentation and the not giving a fuck what people think. I mean, they went off the deep end. Some of those songs are so strange, and I have such respect for that kind of they. There's an insular quality to their music, where it's it's them in a room enjoying. And actually, uh, that band documentary, a lot of it's about their. You know, when they're making their first two records, it's about their friendship. It's about their relationships. You know, and I think when you keep the creative process insular like that and keep it really small when you're creating it, if I do that, it gets me over any of the other imposter stuff that happens maybe when you're promoting or touring and all that kind of anxiety. The And I have such uh, and I don't know if you feel this way with, when you're with your band and maybe not when you're like preparing for touring or for a show, but when you're just simply like rehearsing, I often find myself when I'm in the studio, in our studio, we have a studio in Oakland, when we're rehearsing songs or when we're just kind of working through um, the structure of a song, we're trying to like change the structure of a song or just give it new life or whatever exercise we're going through. I do find myself, um, uh, when we're in the middle of a song, when it's kind of flowing, I look at the people in the band. And I do feel this incredible sense of gratitude. It doesn't that doesn't really go away. I feel this sense of just this gratitude that, you know, the, the big gratitude of that music exists and you can have that part of your brain activated. But this gratitude that there's people that want to give, you know, there's a, a kind of generosity that happens in our band and a lot of bands where I feel that the giving energy the way no one is ever trying to really take the spotlight. It's this amoeba-like shared experience where our music is never really about like, you know, soloing. It's more about a, a sound, you know, uh, but I feel it. I, I always feel in the room, I look at them and I get kind of weepy sometimes in the middle of a song because I'm just grateful that they are alive and that I'm alive in the room with them and that we make the sound together um, and that they have it in their spirit to want to because it doesn't exist without them. And I, I don't, I feel like as long as I have that and I have that with them, that any feelings of um, me being insecure kind of vanish in those moments because um, 
you know, it doesn't really matter then, you know. I wonder about artists who work in a medium that's more solitary because we're so lucky because you're right. We get to be a part of this larger organism. I remember being a kid and singing in choirs and just looking around at all the other people in the choir thinking like, this is so beautiful. Like we are all together, one giant instrument and, and rock bands are like the ultimate expression of that. And boy, don't you miss the other musicians nowadays? Yeah, I do. I do. And, um, and the thing that is so tragic about it is and and you know we're all hoping that it will come back you know but yeah that and that's so there's there's the the gratitude of the band and then there's of course like when you're at a show right when you're playing and you're in it i i love the feeling of knowing that it's only that night yeah i love that and you're throwing the party and it's only that night and 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 that feeling of when you've made your first error in the show when you've like done something and you realize that you know people actually enjoy it and that sense of freedom to know that that the that kind of conundrum of rehearsing your ass off and people loving the mistake it's God, so I love funny it. to me that that's so well put when you've made your first error because there's no such yeah. thing as perfect it's a, at some point somebody's gonna make an error and once it's been done you're like all right pop the cherry on this fucker let's go Sorry, yeah, is, that, yeah. is that unacceptable? Or am I allowed to say, to say that? Um, I think that's okay. I think that's okay. A, I think I'll, I'll accept that. I've got. A, um, but, I have a um, teenage son now, and I just I'm a, I'm. It's like being in the my first band again. Did we had a we had a joke in our band that we had a karma filter on the van, and when we were driving around, we could just say anything, and it was fine because we were we had a karma filter. We were in a safe space. Well, what we would do is we would um, we would listen to the frogs a lot, uh-huh. and you know if you if you accept what they're saying and what you know, then it's like anything we could say is pretty tame. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if you listen to the frogs a bunch on tour, but, <laughs> oh my god, they are they're not uh, not PC. They're but, not. Oh my god, the they performance art of that band is so so funny. Um. All right, so boy, I really I love the you're making me remember so much about the earliest days of of being in a band and being in music. Um, if you were to meet a 21 year old version of yourself, uh, what advice do you think would you'd give yourself? What would resonate? Oh man, <sighs> that's 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 tough. Um, that's a really good question. Um, I would say. Um, and actually you were talking about, um, technology before, and I think I would tell, I would tell myself to spend, um, more time actually understanding recording technique earlier on. Um, I think some of the, a lot of mistakes I made, um, earlier on is not having enough agency over my own sound and relying on others to kind of help me define some of those aesthetics when I think in my mind, I kind of knew what they were, but I didn't have the, um, the ability to really kind of define that and that there's, there's a limitation there. And I, I love the collaborative spirit within the band, but I feel like people outside of the band, um, a lot of people who are really capable engineers or producers will want to, I don't think they'll want to take it from you, but they're, they're going to, if you don't, there's a vacuum if you're not defining it for yourself. And so I feel like at that, 
at that age, I think I should have been investigating and really studying recording technique um, and just how that engineering process works. I think that would have been that would have helped me a lot in finding the right way to express to an engineer what I wanted. So I because I'd find it frustrating sometimes that I was trying to say it. I couldn't say it. and I didn't have enough understanding of how the process worked to be able to get there so someone else would and then i'd get frustrated because it's not what i wanted but they're like well what do you want and so that kind of back and forth i I would have saved myself a lot of heartache if i had just done a lot of that so i wonder i wonder though if the time you would have spent learning that would have um kept you from learning other things that that were more uh, ephemeral and less you know something you can't learn watching a youtube video kind of a thing the the more poetic or spiritual side of what you were i mean i, I i'm not saying you're wrong i'm just wondering mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. maybe that wasn't wasted time maybe it was just spent differently yeah i may i maybe will would have written less and that that's definitely true um that that is definitely true. I think, you know, now that you've asked that question, one one other thing that comes to mind, though, kind of connected to that, is when we first started, and I wasn't twenty one; I was older than that. But um, I was having so many experiences, meeting so many people, you know, with touring or whatever it was, festival, like all the things that come up when you're a band and you're suddenly like promoting or out all the time, and not just in your town anymore, or even bands within your own scene i was so bad at um keeping like in touch with people and just like it's such a i was so overwhelmed with the experience that i didn't always um retain all the relationships i probably should have i just let things like oh yeah that was a fun leg of the tour see you guys you know and there's always like so many things happening and i was so busy all the time and thinking about the next thing that I was doing, that I wasn't kind of just maintaining relationships with other kind of fellow musicians and other people that kind of were in that world. And then time passes, and then you're like, oh, sh-. and and I I feel like I I would have benefited, I think, in terms of just fun input and other collaborations if I'd done a better job, kind of like keeping up with everyone you know but i would just get so zeroed in on my own thing my own kind of just writing the thing keeping you know working on stuff with the band and then just staying focused on that that i feel like you know the musical world is should should be bigger than (laughs) just your own band you know so well i'm glad you and i've gotten to become friends and i'm really grateful that you appeared on wheels off thank you so much yeah it's very exciting i love your show thank you for having me be a part of it well, you did a great job. Thank you. <laughs> and one day, one day, we will do a wheels off, me and you, Dave Hill, combined. Oh, my God. We Let's just do a <laughs> show together with people yes. in a place. With yes. Stuff. Oh. I know. All right. Your lips seriously, to God's ears. Seriously, someday, someday. All right, my friend. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or 
anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.